If you can, track down a Bible and get with me to Esther chapter 3. We're doing a series as a church going through a a book of the Bible called the book of Esther. And one of the uh, themes uh, in the book of Esther, it runs through the whole entire storyline. It's the fact that God is absent. Like he's not in the story. The narrator kind of goes out of their way to ensure that the Lord doesn't accidentally land in there, but the Lord is absent and the people are dealing with adversity. And so this book as a whole is helping us to think through what is it like when you go through those seasons where you feel like you're not sure what God is up to. And some of you are too Christian to admit that that's a reality, but that does happen. So tuck it in your back pocket because there will be seasons in your spiritual journey where you look at you look at the details of your life and you go, wow, this feels like everything is falling apart and I'm not sure where God is. And Esther is a book for those occasions. It helps us to recognize that in and through and behind it all is a God who loves you dearly and cares for you deeply and is working all things together for his good purposes. So we're in Esther chapter 3 and I would love to read it. We're going to do the, the 15 verses there. So I'll start in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. We'll put verses up on the screen as well so you can follow along that way. I'll read it, we'll pray, and we will get to work. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger And he gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with orders to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened your word that you by your spirit through that word would speak. We want to know what you're up to, Lord, even if we can't see your hand at work. We, we want to be able to discern your goodness in the midst of situations that feel very bleak. And so, Lord, would you help us now as a community of faith to recognize what you have for us here. Let us know you better. Let us walk more faithfully unto you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look at this under three headings because three different themes emerge here, power, persecution, and providence. Power is one of the first things that really jumps out at us. We've got a king who, as we've been told, is the king of the then-known world. He rules everything, 127 provinces, from as far in one direction as you can imagine to as far in the other direction as you can imagine. He is in charge. And the question that we bump into is, how does he use that power and that authority? And we quickly realize he does not use it well. In fact, right away, we're surprised. Now, if you're reading the story, the, the previous paragraph was the paragraph about Mordecai finding out about a plan to assassinate the king. He, he unearthed a plan to assa- of a couple individuals who were planning to assassinate King Xerxes, and he made it known. He revealed that plan, and he, he saved the life of the king, and that's the end of, of chapter 2. It just says, okay, here's what happened to him. They, they, that event was recorded in a journal and tucked away in the, in the annals of the, king, of the kings. Basically, he didn't get rewarded for it. They just jotted it down. Like, let's just keep record of this. We'll put it away in the, in the file cabinet. And that's it. And then we move into chapter 3, and we find out that the king is honoring somebody. But it's the wrong somebody. It's not Mordecai, the man who saved his life. It's this other individual named Haman. And, and the king elevates him to this position of prominence and status and issues a decree that whenever this dude walks by, everybody has to give him honor. They have to bow down to him. They have to pay deference and respect to this individual. Well, then as the story unfolds, Mordecai refuses to do that. But the, the issue that we're looking at here is this, this king has power and he's misusing it. He, he, instead of doing right by the people in his kingdom, he is failing to lead well. So the issue is further complicated because Mordecai refuses to bow down and the officials kind of keep prodding him like, why don't you listen to the, the uh, decree of the king? Why are you being disobedient here? And he will not comply. And finally they bring it before Haman himself and he is enraged. I'm, I'm so mad about this, Haman is thinking, that he doesn't just want to get rid of Mordecai, he wants to get rid of all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And so he connivingly goes to the king and he says, he unearths this plan. And he says, look, here's what I think we ought to do. There are people who are problematic and we ought to execute them. And the crazy thing about it is the king does not even bother to look into the details of the claim. He says, okay, if that's what you want to do, here's my signet ring which is a ring that has the insignia on it of the king. It's basically his, his own signature. If you have that ring, you can, you can stamp into wax these official 
things that you are saying. It's basically like a, a presidential executive order. And so when you know, a president writes something down, puts their name on it, and, and then it is enacted, well, in their culture, that, that's what the signet ring would do. It was a way to say, if you wanted something to be accomplished, the king can stamp it, and then it's official. And in their culture, you can't revise it. You can't make an amendment. You can't change it. It is what it is once it is written and made official. And so he says to him, sure, if that's what you want to do, do whatever pleases you. Here's my ring. You have my official signature. Now, this is insane because what he has just said is we should wipe out an entire people. And the, the king says, okay, that's fine. Can you imagine if someone went to the president and said, hey, we ought to nuke a country. And the king says, okay, or I'm sorry, the president says, okay, here's my executive order. Do whatever you think is best. And doesn't even look into the details of the claims that are being made. And here's what's really ironic. He doesn't even realize that what he's about to do would exterminate, would kill the man who just saved his life and his queen. That is a failure of leadership. That's not just like, oh, oh, I, I messed up one day. No, that is, a, that is a gross omission for him to have that much power and that much authority and to misuse it so profoundly. It's, it's incredibly ironic. And then we get to the end, and they've sent out the issue, they've written that decree, they've translated it into all the different languages, and they make it known that on a particular day, everybody get ready because they're going to destroy the Jews. And the, everyone's up in arms about it. You, you, they're, they're just like, what, what is happening here? And here again, we see this failure of leadership because the, the king and Haman are both so disconnected from reality that here's what's happening. The city is bewildered, but what are they doing? They're having cocktails. They, they're having drinks. You can look at that in the very last verse. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So there was this incredible disconnect between what, what, how, the, how the leaders were behaving and what was going on in the city itself. I mean, we've got a saying, it's like fiddling while Rome is burning, right? Like when you're a leader and you're not doing what you should be doing, you're just totally unaware of the, the reality of the circumstances and you're just kind of playing your fiddle while your city's on fire. That's the kind of scenario that we've got here. Having cocktails while the city is crazy. Like, that's the kind of leadership that we're looking at here, where they, they just totally disconnected, totally unaware, totally negligent. Now, so King Xerxes obviously is a poor leader, but Haman as well. We see in Haman this, this uh, petty enragement. Look at verses 5 and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And then what he does next is he presents this, uh, this, this situation to the king in verses 8 and 9, and he's basically saying, these people, they are a problem. But he's, he's manipulating the story a little bit. He's, try, he's presenting it in the worst light possible. And what we find then is not, we find these two leaders who are abusing their power, one being absolutely negligent and only concerned with what he perceives would be in his best interest, and then Haman, who is obviously doing what he thinks is in his best interest. And so we need to think through, how do we handle power and authority? 
And one of the things that we can do when we read a story like this is we can distance ourselves and go, those guys, they're dorks. Like, they just don't get it. The problem is when we start to evaluate our own hearts and see the tendency in us, in them. Meaning, when we begin to recognize that sometimes when we're given power and authority, we misuse it. We use it for our own self-interest. We can do this with parenting. We can do this in our place of employment. We can do this in, in our homes. We can do this in church. I remember, um, I'll just put myself on blast here, but I remember when I was a, a minister to students, I took them on a, a summer camp, and what they would do is every night they would take these letters that the youth groups would write, and the students would put them in a mailbox, and then during a, an evening session, they'd open the mailbox and they'd pull out a letter and they'd read it. And my, my letter didn't get uh, read publicly, but the students gave it to me later, and they handed it to me, and they were, they were complimentary of like, here are the things that we appreciate about you, and all, all these different things were listed, but the Holy Spirit highlighted one line for me, and it wasn't a word of encouragement. The students meant it to be. They were saying, hey, we, we, all these different things, one of the things they write in there, we love how much you love your messages. And the Holy Spirit underlined that one and said, you see what you're doing there? They're your messages. You've got power and authority. You've got this incredible job, but you're using it. What for, Cor? For your own glory, your own self-interest. You're using the student ministry as a platform. You know, like, like if there were preaching scouts, I'd be looking for them, right? Like I want to put myself in a situation where someone could hear me preach. And the Holy Spirit was saying that that is a misuse of authority. Instead of being a blessing to the students, instead of using your you know, your, your assigned position for their benefit, you're using it for your own. So when we think about power and authority, we just have to get honest about how it is that we mishandle it and how prone we are to use it for our own glory. Well, this shows up later in the Bible. There was a situation where two of the, the disciples and their mama, on Mother's Day, this is pretty appropriate, but their mama comes up and says, hey, Lord, uh, we recognize that you're a great teacher, but we think there's a day coming where you're going to have all kinds of power. She says, when you get in that situation, when you have that sort of power and that authority, when you come into your kingdom, can you do me a solid favor here? Can you take one of my boys and put them on your right hand and the other one on your left? In other words, she's basically saying, when you become like King Xerxes and you have all of this rulership and all of this authority, can you make one of my children like Haman? Can you make them the, the second most important person in your kingdom? And my other son, please pay that son honor as well. Put them in another position of prominence. And the Lord had to correct not only the mom and the sons, but all of his disciples. And he said, listen, the, the kings of the earth the rulers of the earth, they lorded over you. They use their power for their own interest. Not so with you. When you have power and authority, you use it for the benefit of others. If you want to be great, he says, you need to become a servant of all. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here today. The story is showing us how to misuse power, and we need to consider how we might use the power that we have wisely for God's glory. Well, the second theme that emerges here is the idea of persecution. We've already looked at what happened, but now we need to ask the question, why? Mordecai refused to bow down and 
Haman got so enraged that he enacted a plan to kill all of the Jews. But the question that we have to ask is, why did that, why did that happen? Why was Mordecai so resistant to this idea of kneeling down? We might say, well, you know, he's a follower of God, and he, you know, this is just what we do. We don't always bow down to people around us. But, but it's even more complicated than that because, honestly, Mordecai would have bowed down to a lot of things in that culture. And he would have had to compromise on a lot of things in that culture. So why was it here that he says, I can't do that? It's not in me to do that. And the details are here for us to figure it out. Uh, but, it, but not all of us are like Dwight with a PhD in Old Testament studies, so we have to do a little bit of work here. So the details are in the descriptors, okay? Look at this. When it describes Haman in verse 1, it says, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And you go, oh, now I get it, right? No, you're like, oh, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's giving us a people, and it's causing us to think through, what is his lineage here? And if you trace it back, it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 17 to this people called the Amalekites. It's a people group that mistreated the people of God, and the Lord declared that there would be this ongoing conflict between the people of God and this people, the Amalekites. And then later on, uh, one of the people of God became king. His name was King Saul. And the Lord said to King Saul, here's what you need to do with the Amalekites. I want you to do this very specific and particular thing. And King Saul said, okay. And then he goes forward and he goes, ah, I'm going to change the plan. I don't like that plan. I know the Lord told me to uh, take a military campaign and do this thing, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to plunder that people and I'm going to spare their king, King Agag, A-G-A-G. And so what do we find here? We find out that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, from that, from that lineage, from that line. And then when we, look at, when we look at Mordecai and his lineage, what do we find out? He's actually from the tribe of Saul. So he has this long-standing story with his own people of, we did not obey God on this front. Historically, we have not done right here. And so when you're asking me to bow down to him, I cannot do it. I can't do it. Even though the king issued a decree, even though it might end up doing great harm to him, he says, this is the line that I cannot cross. And therefore, he experiences persecution. Well, unfortunately, uh, I can't prescribe what he does here as the way forward for us. We're living in a time where Culturally speaking, I think a lot of things are changing, and Christians have to figure out, where do we draw a line? Like, at what point do we say, I cannot do what culture or society is asking me to do? We have to figure out what that is. And, and truthfully, Mordecai is not a great example for us. It's one of those situations where the Bible describes something, but it's not prescribing it. It's saying, here's what he's done. It doesn't necessarily mean this is what all of us should do as well. Because the commentators point this out, Mordecai is kind of frustrating. In some ways, it looks like he's majoring on the minors. Like he's compromising on primary things and, and then, you know, standing his ground on secondary issues. And so we just have to recognize that what we would need then to do this well is wisdom. We need wisdom and nuance to know where we should draw the line. And we don't have time here to, to unpack all of this, but, but I'll I will encourage you in this direction. As a pastor, I see the full spectrum. And I see some people who are willing to stand at a moment's notice 
If the culture says something to me, I'm going to stand up against it. And on that front, I think some of us need to be encouraged in, in a different direction. The Lord said, Jesus himself, he said to some of the religious leaders, he said, you guys are so busy straining out gnats, but you're swallowing camels, which I know that sounds super weird. He's using metaphors here to say, you're so concerned about these small little things. Meanwhile, you're willing to swallow a camel. So you're, you're pouring your drink and you're, you got your coffee filter thing and you're like, I'm not letting a gnat go in there, but this camel can hop in there and I'll drink that. And the Lord is kind of rebuking a people then and saying, you're, you're getting all riled up about the wrong stuff. Some of us need to be aware of that, that we might stand firm for what we think is truth, but the, our consciences need to be informed a little bit better. There are some things on which we can flex, some things on which we can accommodate to try to be more missional and effective. But some of us need to be encouraged. You have to draw a line. Like you, you don't have a, a blank slate to be able to say, yeah, whatever culture says, you just go with it. Just roll with it. It's fine. Some of us need to recognize that we have to inform our convictions to the point where they align with God. And there will be moments where we have to say, as a follower of God, I know everyone else says this is okay. I know culture is going in this direction, but, but my conscience is bound and I cannot go beyond here. We have to figure that stuff out together. But persecution, persecution is what we're talking about here. It is the reality of following God. And I say that, and I know it sounds funny in a crowd like this, but from a biblical perspective, persecution is normal. Not abnormal, it is normal. To follow God means you are following God's ways and you will be met with hostility. John 3 puts it like this. It says, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. It's revealing to us this dichotomy that if you're following God and you're shining his light to the world, there's going to be some hostility toward that because people hate the light. It exposes their evil deeds. So true followers of God, we have to be ready to suffer on account of the name of the Lord. We have to be ready for that. We have to even expect it. Now, again, persecution is normal. If you look at the world right now, there is an incredible amount of persecution for true followers of God. We might sit here in McChesney Park and kind of scratch our heads and go, well, that sounds odd to us. But the truth is that is normal in most places. So we have to figure out how can we engage with persecution in a way that's Christ-like, that's non-combative, that's non-retaliatory, that's not saying the world is hostile toward us, we better just get them back. No, 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 that's not the way of Christ. What did he do? He, he quietly went to the cross and died. And from the cross, he prayed things like this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's the kind of thing that we're after here. We need to be a people who practice Christ-likeness in the face of persecution. Well, finally, we have this theme of providence. Providence is a word that basically means that God is actively involved in the world that he's made. He didn't just wind it up and set it free and go, well, let's see how this plays out. No, he's very much involved in the world presently. He is working his plan out in real time for us. So there are many things that point to his providence. One is the circumstances are in his hands, meaning he's in control of the, the circumstance in which the people of God find themselves in. 
Haman describes it like this in verse 8. There's a certain people dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. That's just a description, but it is true. And we can say the Lord is a part of that. The reason why they're dispersed, the reason why they're there, the circumstances are in the Lord's hands. So they can look at that and they can be frustrated by it. Why are we here? What are we still doing here? Why haven't we gone back? And all these different things. But, but we also have to recognize that the Lord is in the details. Then we, we also can consider this. The lot is in the Lord's hands. Now, this is a weird one, but a lot is like a, it's like a way of using divination to make decisions. So you've got, let's say, um, it's like dice. They like roll dice and they look at how it lands and they go, okay, this is, the gods did this. So we've got those magic eight balls, right? And there's like flat spots on the answers and we shake it up and we go, should I go to school tomorrow? No. All right. Um, we use things like that to try to make these significant decisions and we assign the results to the gods. And so that's what's going on here. Haman is saying, when should we enact this plan? On what day should we execute all of the Jews? And they roll the dice and it lands on a certain date and is far out in advance. And they go, okay, this is, this is the God's doing. This is the day then. What do we find out, though, as we read the Bible? Is that circumstantial? Is that just kind of, you know, the, they fell how they fell? No, what we find out is that God is able to cause the dice to fall a certain way. Proverbs puts it like this. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The writer of the Proverbs recognizes you might use you know, a magic eight ball or some dice to try to make decisions, but really behind all of it is a God who can do something, a God who is in charge and every decision comes from him. So the, that, that little act that happened there will describe the significance of that in just a moment, but um, even the dice are in the hands of the Lord. Then we also realize the king is in the hands of the Lord. In Proverbs 21 verse 1, it says, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is like a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. So the king, we recognize the, the failure that he, hit, that he has been in this, but we also acknowledge that even the decision-making of the king, his heart has been influenced by the Lord. That the Lord is able to direct the king's decisions like a channel of water in whatever direction the Lord pleases. The Lord has that kind of providence, that kind of sovereignty over his creation. But the most significant one, I think, for us is that time is in the hands of the Lord. Time is in the hands of the Lord. And we get these time stamps here in verse 7 and then again in, in verse 13. But it says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. And you go, oh yeah, I totally got that, dude. I know why that's so important for me. I can go home now and I got my spiritual filling for the day because we just heard about this date uh, in Nisan and another date in Adar. But here's what's going on. These are very significant dates. I didn't know this, by the way. One of the commentators said, it is, th this is obvious. And I said, no, it's not. Not for me, at least, and I wonder if I'm not alone, but they said, this is so obvious. These dates that are given here, one of them, the first one, when the, when the dice were rolled, it's the month of selection for the Jews. It's the time when they go out and they find the lamb that they're going to slaughter. It's the month of selection. 
So they have to go out, they have to pick the lamb that they're going to use as the sacrificial lamb later on in the year, um, and that's when that's happening. And then this, the second date, and specifically the day that shows up in, the, in those final verses there, it is the day before the Passover. It's the day before the Passover event, the holiday of the Jews, recognizing God's saving work on their behalf. Those two dates then are meant to kind of flag the whole story and go, okay, is this coincidence? No way. God is up to something here. He is communicating his ability to save his people. He is in charge of time itself. The plan is in his hands. And he is working his plan out to bring about his saving work. The incredible reversal of what looks like catastrophe, but then ends up being salvation. He, he is able to take the details, the smallest little things that are going on, and he's able to wield them for good. That's an incredible thing that's going on here, and we need to reflect on that, that God is in charge, and he uses his providence for his good purposes. But listen, I don't want to get ahead of us here. When you're in it, when you're in it, you can claim that truth, but do you know what it feels like on the inside? It feels out of control. Look again at verse 15. The city of Susa was bewildered. I've had the privilege of sitting with some of you and hearing your story, and, and uh, there, there are quite a few individuals who are in that season right now. God has gone missing, and everything feels chaotic. And I'm not trying to just throw some petty little spiritual nuggets at you and make it go away. I want you to understand that the season that you're in, it is frustrating. It is concerning. It is bewildering. And you should feel all of that. And you have permission to feel all of that. When you look at your life and you find it not what you expected and you look for God and you pray to him and you feel like he's not answering and certainly not on the timeline that you would prefer, there, there is a reality here that that is hard. But behind all of that is a good God who is at work on your behalf. And so this story helps us to reflect on the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. We have a king who has incredible power. He, ha he has so much power, in fact, that he can work all things together according to his plan. Now, he is not selfish. He's not, only, he's not just sitting around going, what's in my best interest here? No, no, no. He looks to us and he looks to our concerns and our needs. He is attentive to what we most desperately need. And instead of using his power selfishly, he, he wields it sacrificially for our good. Jesus goes to the cross in our place. We were sentenced to death under the penalty of sin. And he says, I will pay that for them. It's the good news of the gospel that the king loved us and, and he doesn't issue decrees of how we ought to follow him. No, he compels us with his love. He was willing to send his son to die in our place, and we should be glad recipients of that good news. And we should follow him gladly, and we should seek to become more like him. With the power that we have, we should bless and serve other people. We should be willing to experience persecution for his sake and do that gladly and with a Christ-likeness that is gentle and loving, even toward our enemies. But he is the one who has the ability to work providence in our, favor, in our favor, so we should trust him. We should entrust ourselves to his saving work 
that he performed in real time for the Israelites and he performs for us at the cross. Let's look to him and believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help each of us to trust you, even if we can't see you. Even if it feels like our lives are chaotic and we're bewildered and we don't know what you're doing, help us to trust that you are good and help us to trust that you are at work. Help us to see the connections of how you are a saving God. You were able to save your people then. You're able to save your people now. You can save us from our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. We thank you for the good news of the gospel and your love for us, and we pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen.